One this morning? Doing okay? All right. So what we're going to do, we'll <clears throat> pick up where we left off last week. And um, this week, and as well as next week, and possibly even the following week, we're going to talk a lot about human nature and who are we and why do we do the things that we do. Okay? And so this week, we will continue to build on last week. We stopped at, I believe, humans are fallen and therefore sinful, right? And we ended with uh, Romans chapter 1, where we read just the implications of what happens when we fail to live for the glory of God and how that... uh... (laughs) Was it reading the Bible for you? Keep in mind, the, the reason we're talking about human nature and we're going to spend a couple of three weeks on human nature is because it's very, very important in terms of how we view ourselves and how we view the process of change. If you remember last week, um, I gave a couple of examples. If I was a Freudian psychoanalyst and you came to see me, I would have all kinds of ideas and presuppositions and constructs that would shape my interpretation of what's wrong with you and then that would shape what I would prescribe to you to to uh, that I believe would help you to change or help you to mature and so the Bible gives us a rich conceptual lens to understand the question who are we it gives us a lot about the question why do we do the things that we do these are the big questions of psychology Um, and scripture comes in and and gives a lot of detail as to those two questions. Who am I and why do I do the things that I do? So, humans are fallen and therefore sinful. This is a part of our conceptual lens of who we are. Um, I don't think I covered this last week, but if so, it's okay. We'll, we'll hit it again. There's a, there is a textbook that uh, one of my interns brought to me. They were in their master's program. and they had a textbook that they were reading for some class. And here's a quote from that textbook on the issue of sin for counselors. And I believe that this probably is the consensus of the field in which I work. Um, Sin is a religious term, not a counseling concept. Although it has well-intentioned and skilled followers, religious counseling is a contradiction in in terms of practitioners intend through their counseling to save or convert their clients. Clients have a right to their personal values. So if you ever go to a counselor, even if it's a Christian counselor, I'm going to tell you they are not going to bring up the issue of sin to you. Um, I I have colleagues who are Christian psychologists, Christian counselors, and all of them get very frustrated with me because I, on on the front end of coming to see me as a counselor, I'm going to tell you I'm a biblical counselor, I operate from the construct of Scripture, Sin is a part of our conversation, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> We're trained, don't ever bring any of that up unless the client brings it up in a session. And if they bring it up and they want to talk about it, then you can follow them and talk about it. Very human-centered, very person-centered. But Scripture gives us a different picture. Um, I like to use the two categories, depravity versus deprivation. This is a big concept in the world of psychology, depravity versus deprivation. Almost all theories in psychology and counseling, almost all of your 
uh, modern-day self-help books <clears throat> come to human nature with the concept of deprivation. And what I mean by that is it comes to you and says you have certain psychological, emotional needs, and if those needs are deprived, then it's going to cause you to do certain things in your life in the future. It's a deprivation model. In other words, whatever go and <clears throat> we're going to talk about this, whatever goes on in your life history, if you don't have certain needs that are met, it's going to impact you in such a way that almost determines who you will become. Okay? So if you were a, uh, a child and your father did not give you um, approval, then he didn't meet your approval, your need for approval. And so you're going to live out your life trying to fulfill that need through other people. Now, de the depravity model looks at that just a little bit differently. And it takes very seriously the fact that dad didn't give you approval. We would not ignore that. We wouldn't say that's insignificant. We would never say, get over yourself. But what we understand is that the heart is not a passive agent. Uh, the deprivation model looks at the heart as passive. It looks at the heart as neutral. Um, it probably leans in the direction of John Locke's idea of the blank slate, that I'm just born this, this innocent creature, and life writes its story upon my heart, and if certain needs aren't met, then I become whatever. The depravity model looks at us as beings of worship, that from, uh, from the time that we are consciously aware of other relationships, uh, we are living our lives to a large degree motivated by worship. What do I worship? What do I want most in a given moment? So if my dad did not give me approval, it, it's not as though he did not fulfill some, some psychological need. It's that I desire approval. I want approval. Approval from my dad is very important. But if it doesn't happen, my depraved heart begins to cause me to want that approval to the point it becomes the treasure of my heart. And it aligns with uh, what Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that, there your heart will be also. Um, so we're going to look at, at sin not really as just behavioral stuff. If the quote that I mentioned from the secular textbook is a very simplistic caricature of our understanding of sin. Sin is something that is not simply behavioral, it's something within, and it affects how we interact with God, it affects how we interact with people, it affects how we interact with our own inner subjective understanding of who we are, and it's a disease. Um, our biggest enemy is the enemy within. <clears throat> a proper view of the psychology of man acknowledges that humanity's greatest ill is sin or depravity. The active sinful natures that emanate from the human heart serve always to move individuals away from God and bend them in towards themselves. The hostile, deceptive agenda of such desires promote destruction and corruption within the heart and life of people. Biblical counsel points people to the active Redeemer that they through Him might effectively confront and crucify the flesh. Uh, the Puritan preacher, Ralph Venning, he was a Puritan. He describes sin's presence this way. Sin is a loathsome thing. This is clear when we begin to consider that which sin resembles, unto which it is likened as the most offensive and most loathsome diseases, a canker or a gangrene. 
So he didn't look at uh, sin as simply doing bad things. He understood there's something inside of us that is a sickness. Now, as believers, um, we understand that we are dead to sin at the end of the day, right? We've been made alive in Christ. Sin does not have power over us. If we yield to sin, it's because we're yielding to an enemy that's already defeated, period. But the fact is we still do that. We still have a propensity to yield to this defeated enemy of sin. Sin still has an influence over our daily lives. When Paul gives his account of his own struggle with sin, he acknowledges the same thing. And whether you believe Paul's writing as a believer or he's writing at pre-conversion, really the, 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 the logic is still very important for us as Christians in Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How many of us can relate to Paul's dilemma here? I know what I should not be doing, but I did it again. And I know the things that I should be doing every day of my life, and I fail to do them every day of my life. And Paul acknowledges there's something going on within him uh, that is creating a motivational crisis. I mean, we are talking, when we're reading uh, Romans chapter 7, we are talking the nuts and bolts, the guts of psychology. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I not doing what I know I'm supposed to do? And Paul gives us a glimpse it's because there's another law waging war against me in, in my members. And then James chapter 1 also points to sin as being an inward issue, not so much an outward uh, issue. It is an outward issue, but its origin is inward. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James is talking about desire. What do I want? When you begin to come to the question of how, what, what is the crux of transformation? One of the primary questions you want to put in front of yourself is what do I want? What do I desire? And all of us in this room in a nice Sunday school setting can say conceptually, we want the glory of the Lord. But when you put us in our family circumstances or you put us in a job situation or you put us in a, a, a conflict with a friend and you begin to see our behavior unfold in those moments, then you're really beginning to see what I actually want. If, if, my, if, I, if my wife does anything that is uh, any shade of disrespect towards me and I respond to her with criticism or I respond to her with anger, I don't want the glory of God. I want respect. My treasure in that moment is not the Lord of glory. My treasure is me and myself. And that this, this becomes a major construct in understanding why we do what we do, why we think what we think, why we say the things that we say at times. The ultimate question is what do I want? This inner struggle is a heart struggle. So what does the Bible conceptualize as the heart? Herman Ritterboss, who's a theologian, puts it this way. 
just as in the whole of the New Testament, so in Paul as well, the heart is the concept that preeminently denotes the human ego in its thinking, affections, aspirations, decisions, both in man's relationship to God and to the world surrounding him. So let me, let me emphasize heart. So when we talk about heart, we're talking about the ego. We're talking about human psychology. <clears throat> and here's what emanates from the heart. Thinking, affections, what do I want? Aspirations, what is the telos of my life? What is the ultimate aim? What is the ultimate good that I'm chasing? My decisions, uh, both in our relationships to God and relationships to each other. That's the concept of the heart. If we... If we um, quote some of the modern writers in biblical counseling of Christian psychology, here's what they say about the heart. Robert Roberts, who is a professor at Baylor University, he's a philosopher, considers the heart as the seat of human functioning responsible for things such as wishes, cares, intentions, plans, motives, emotions, thoughts, attitudes, and imaginings. Psychologist Malcolm Jeeves, who uh, is very... uh, very well-known in the literature, says this, all motivation for human action and reaction finds its seat in the human heart. That's a psychologist saying that. Um, Talbot observes that biblically, the heart is the whole person, a person's inner life or character, the center of his or her personality. And Dr. Ed Welch refers to the heart as the final cause of human functioning. And so we start started today with this idea uh, from the secular world that sin has no place in the, in the realm of counseling. But when you begin to understand human psychology from a biblical perspective, we understand that the heart, which the Bible mentions a lot, uh, has, a, has much to do with affections, desires, thinking, aspirations, why we do what we do. And then we have to consider Paul's teaching and other teachings in Scripture that there is something influencing my heart called sin that I must be aware of if I'm hoping to truly change. Now, here's a story. Uh, Years ago, um, I had a gentleman come to me in his late 70s. And he was trembling. He was shaking while he was sitting in front of me. He was a retired minister from a particular denomination that tends to be pretty legalistic. And he was sitting in front of me because in his 40s, he had been arrested. He was a pastor and had a huge children's ministry, and he had been arrested and convicted for um, child sexual abuse. He was a predator. Um, Had a big family, big family. And he was sitting in front of me because he had, he had a 17-year-old grandson and had him in a particular situation uh, where they were alone, and he tried to make a move on his, on his grandson. And grandson said, uh, I'm not having anything to do with this, told mom. And so here's this 70, probably 78-year-old man sitting in my office. He had been through therapy. He had been in prison. He had gone to therapy in prison. All kinds of things uh, as far as trying to help him with this problem. And he's sitting in front of me scared to death because he knows I'm a biblical counselor. He thinks I'm going to rain down the wrath of God on him because that's his faith background, which I didn't. I had a lot of mercy and grace for this man. But as we got to talk, he, he told me that 
most of his therapists told him that he does what he does and struggles with what he struggles with because he has a disease. That he has a diseased brain <clears throat> that somehow causes this problem of wanting to pursue children. And I was the first counselor, 78 years old, imprisoned in his late 30s, lots of therapy. I was the first counselor that ever told him, sir, this is an issue of sin. You have something within you, lust, that has controlled you. And we're going to deal with this biblically. And we're going we're to learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ relates to you. And I believe God's going to help you. And over a, a, a year time span, this man's life was transformed. He, he wept and wept and wept in front of me saying, Jeremy, I, I, my mind has not been this clear in 30 years. And that's not because of anything. That was all God deciding to do something big in this man's life. It had nothing to do with what I was doing. But I brought truth to him. And it was amazing. The, the final session that we had, you know, for a, for a year he was ostracized from his family. They wanted nothing to do with him. My last meeting had all the daughters. The grandson was there. He was there. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, tears. And... These folks check in with me from time to time and their lives have been changed. Why? Because we included the construct of sin in this man's struggle. Okay? So sin is a big part of this. We also want to recognize, as far as our nature as people, that we are fundamentally motivated by worship. We're not blank slates. We're not innocent creatures born out of the womb. Uh, neutral, we are worshipers. We are fundamentally worshipers. We have an agenda from very early on. Children do what they want to do based on what they want as the center of their own universe. Again, quoting Jesus in Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do I treasure? What do I want? He also said this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is making a massive statement in when he says we cannot serve two masters. Now, obviously, uh, at the end of the day, we're either mastered by sin or we're mastered by the spirit, right? Unbeliever, believer. But even as believers, we can yield our hearts to, to old masters, old patterns of sin. And Jesus uses very strong language here, which is sobering and humbling. If you choose to love this master, you hate this master. If you choose to be devoted to this master, you despise this master. So in that moment when my wife disrespects me and I respond to her sinfully, I respond to her with anger because she's not revolving around my treasure. What I, have all, what I have done in the horizontal, which is sin against her, in the vertical, I have committed cosmic war against God. In that moment, I have, in, in the language of Jesus, I've hated him. I've despised him. Which is a very eye-opening reality for me. We are worshipers, moment by moment. 
in that in that uh, traffic jam when we're screaming at the at the traffic in front of us and maybe cursing or whatever we do in those moments, we're waging war. Because in that moment, I could, if I wanted to, remember some of the things we've talked about in previous classes. I could remember this, is, this traffic jam is part of a bigger story. This is part of God's redemptive plan. This is a reminder to me I'm not in control. He's in control. This is a reminder to me I need to get over myself and my fear of man and, and not be consumed with the, the worry that the people that, that are supposed to be meeting me are going to be upset with me because I'm late. This is a moment where I must trust the Lord. I must glory in his sovereignty and worship him. But most of us aren't thinking that, right? Why? Because we have this thing in us, just like Paul, that pulls us towards what we think is most important in that moment. If I'm getting upset in a traffic jam, it's, in a sinful way, it's revealing what I really want. It's exposing to me that I'm still far far from where I need to be in the sanctification process because God's glory is not my treasure. People are continually operating in their hearts before a holy God. Jay Adams, who was the founder of, of biblical counseling, long ago said, we swim in the presence of God moment by moment. Psalm 139 is a beautiful portrait of this, the whole psalm. But verses 7 through 9 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's not a place in the cosmos where we can escape the presence of a holy God. Now, I don't want this to be too heavy for you because everything I'm saying right now, which could feel very discouraging... <laughs> When I'm disrespectful to my wife, I'm committing cosmic war against God. That's a little discouraging, right? But what it really should do for us is to, to elevate the beauty of the gospel. Because when I start thinking in these terms of how, I mean, moment by moment, moment by moment, I could be sinning against the Lord in my heart. Doesn't it make the beauty of the gospel all the more precious? That's why Jesus came for us. We are far more desperate for the gospel than we realize. That's why that, that secular textbook is so far off. It's not just about bad behavior. It's not just about a bad deed. We can control that to a degree, right? But this thing going on inside of us is much more difficult to control. And thanks be to God, we had a redeemer who came and entered this very difficult fallen world and not one time fell to sin. For us. And so we're talking about something heavy, but it, it shouldn't breed condemnation in you. I want it to point you to the face of Jesus so that you can thank him and praise him and glory in his love for you. Because what he did was profound. James K.A. Smith is a, a modern philosopher. Uh, he has a wonderful, several books, but one, if you want to read him, uh, you Are What You Love is one of his books. Now, he goes a little bit too, too far in a way because he, he does tend to put down the cognitive aspect of our, our nature, our thinking, because he's really trying to prove a point that we're, 
We're driven by our affections. And he has a wonderful point there. Uh, but we, we're also thinking creatures, which he, he minimizes a bit. But here's what he says. Um, well, we are, at the end of the day, you and I, living in an existential either or. An existential either or. Either we are living motivated by a love for God or in opposition to him. This either or includes the realms of thought, desire, words, and behavior. The crux of the human experience is that our hearts always respond out of a treasure trove of loves. And here's what James K.A. Smith articulates on this. We are talking about ultimate loves, that to which we are fundamentally oriented, what ultimately governs our vision of the good life, what shapes and molds our being in the world. In other words, what we desire above all else the ultimate desire that shapes and positions and makes sense of our uh, ultimate and penultimate desires and actions. Paul Tripp, on the same topic, says this, you don't divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Every human being is a worshiper, and every act of a human being in some way expresses worship. Worship is who we are and what we do. Either I am living in proper covenantal relationship with God or I am striking an idle covenant against him. We are worshipers. That's part of our human nature. Something you will never, ever, ever, ever see in the secular literature of psychology. Okay? Because the spiritual realm cannot be measured under a microscope or through the scientific method, therefore it's invalid. That's the, that's the view of psychology. Uh, but when we come to ourselves biblically, we understand there's something more than the material. We are spiritual. We are worshipers. C.S. Lewis understand this, the activity of the human heart. We're not blank slates. We're not neutral. There's something very active going on inside of us. And, and here's what he said. All my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with the universal spirit when he became a Christian. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. So as C.S. Lewis was awakened by the Spirit of God, he began to realize inside of him were things that were extremely active, extremely influential, on the way he lived his life, on the way he viewed himself and others. Thoughts so far? Anything? Any questions, thoughts, pushback? Anything? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> a great question yes absolutely and that's a hard one uh, but yes there is righteous anger I mean I know in the book of James it says anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires but then we can you know, you know anger the anger that put on him yes yeah it, it, there is righteous anger we just have to be very careful because we are all susceptible to calling right, sinful anger righteous. Um, <clears throat> so, to be angry at the reality of abortion in our culture is very righteous. Um, 
we cross the line if we walk up to a doctor doing that and lacerate him with our words. So uh, a woman being abused in her home should have righteous anger. And, and out of that anger, you know, when, when she confronts the situation, it's not so much to hang her husband. It should be driven by a holy love that this is, this is incongruent with the creation that God created. And so as a means to love God, and even as a means to love this man who's abusive to me, I will, con- I will confront him, or if I'm too afraid to do that because it could harm me, I'm going to go to the men in my church and the elders in my church, and in my righteous anger, I'm going to go tell them exactly what's going on in my home. And then I, hopefully the, the men of the church go deal with it. So wonderful question. There's a good book out there that, that recently came out. <clears throat> Dr. David Pallison, he, he can nuance things more than any person I've ever read. And he wrote a book called Good and Angry, where he really digs into this question of anger, puts it on a spectrum. You know, he, he, he talks about, he gives a little example <clears throat> where his wife is banging some dishes or something in the kitchen and he's reading his newspaper and he starts getting irritated because it's making noise and he looks over the paper and he said, in that moment I had an anger problem. Where most of us thinking about anger, we're thinking about the guy hitting knocking walls and uh, knocking holes in the wall right but he does a good job of saying no anger's on a spectrum in that moment of irritation when i just had this sinful thought about my wife because she's making too much noise that's on the spectrum so good and angry dr david pallison yes sir So, so let me. So, is my direct question: Are Christian counselors promoting a form of self-worship through this rhetoric of improvement and dealing with your stuff without bringing the gospel to bear? It's a very good question and a complex question. Um, <clears throat> let me answer that in a couple of ways. First, if it's a Christian counselor who has a practice under that name. Uh, and they're not drawing from Scripture. They're just drawing from the secular. They don't really have a biblical worldview because they've never been trained in it. But they are, their practice is Christian counseling, and they're in the Christian counseling directory, and et cetera, et cetera. Yes. I think they're failing to do all that they could do in that setting. Now, let's say I'm a Christian counselor, and I'm working at MHMR. Which is a, which mental health, mental retardation. It's a very secular location, right? And I'm I really am not allowed to bring in the gospel because I will lose my job. There's something redemptive and beautiful to bring common grace through what I've learned 
and am allowed to do in that setting to relieve the suffering of someone struggling with schizophrenia. Does that make sense? It's a very, it's a tough question. In my setting, I can do that with disclosure. You know, people come to me, they know my approach. It's a private practice. I think any Christian in a private practice has a responsibility to operate out of a, a worldview that's more Christian than not. But there are situations where professionals in my world cannot, they're not allowed to do that because it could cost them their job. And I still think there's lots of room for them to bring God's good grace through their training to alleviate suffering of people. Is that self-worship? Uh, that's a hard, that's hard. I don't think that's their intent. I think the intent is, is I want to help someone. And they're constricted. And that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate struggle. Um, does that answer your question? Somewhat. It's, it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, the Christian counseling world is saturated with secular thought. And if you go to the seminaries and the universities, they'll tell you themselves their students are, are very anemic in understanding how the Bible applies to any of this psychology stuff. And so most of them aren't trained. And so that, and I see what you're saying, I see a lot when people come to me, they've been to two or three counselors, I'm the first guy that actually opens the scripture and talks about how that applies to what they're struggling with. And people, people find that, people who of faith looking for that really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. And so that's a very real place we find ourselves in the world. Do I feel God can use me there? Yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to step out and say, public school is so tainted, I can't make a difference. Right, right. Yeah. Our location in, in the professional community will, will, in many ways, shape what we're allowed to do and not allowed. Um, but when it comes to People seeking therapy uh, and seeking counseling from a Christian professional, there's a big difference between what a biblical counselor is going to bring to the table and what Christian counselors are going to bring to the table. Um, so I'm learning that a lot of, you know, teachers, counselors, caseworkers, things of that sort, they can't bring it up, but if I bring it up, 
then they can kind of elaborate on it. My question is, how do you think that the fact that they could lose their job, that they could be reprimanded, how do you think that affects those people in the situations where the client is saying, I'm a believer, where the client is saying, I believe that grace is what's helping me, how do you think that affects them actually stating what they really believe once that client introduces it to the session? Yeah. It's, <clears throat> that's a broad question. Um, from my experience, which is limited, I don't know everything, but what I, what I know from my personal experience, and I have a PhD in a huge evangelical university, from bachelor's to PhD, Liberty University, biggest <laughs> evangelical school in the country, on up to PhD, which is, an, uh, I've never, I never had a single class on how the Bible applies to what I do. Never, never had, never even opened a Bible in my psychology classes. And that's not to throw anybody under the bus. I'm just saying what these schools have to do, if they're going to, if they're going to educate students to become licensed professionals by a state, they have to follow the state's requirements on what classes they're teaching and what content they teach. And so a lot of these schools are in a, they're in a pickle because they're already crammed with these classes required by the state. Now, if they're going to require all these Bible classes, it, you know, you're going to have a 70-hour master's program, and nobody's going to do that. So I, I get where they're at. That's why we have a ministry to try to train professionals in biblical counseling. So if, that, if, a, if something comes up and you bring up your faith, my assumption, for the most part, is most practitioners are not going to be well-equipped to, to go there. That's an assumption, and there are exceptions. <clears throat> so do you think there are uh, secular or kind of like empirical psychology approaches um, to, do, to, to help solve things like PTSD? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Can cope, that can be used alongside of Christian counseling on things like EMDR, yep. for example. Yeah. Um, do, they, do they exist side by side, or, or do you see them being mm. Wonderful. Uh, yes, research has a, a huge place in the world of biblical soul care, in my opinion. Um, so I can I can work with someone on all of these heart issues who's been in a traumatic experience, and then they can do a few sessions with a therapist doing EMDR and and get some relief that I'm not able to bring through that technology. Neurofeedback therapy, biofeedback therapy. It's a wonderful new um, method of, of helping people with ADHD or, or anxiety. And what I think those, those kind of treatments offer, it just exposes the scriptures that says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I don't want to be an anti-research kind of guy. Matter of fact, uh, if you're a, a theology nerd... This book right here, God and Soul Care, is just, it just came out, and it's a book written by a Christian psychologist who is a friend of mine who he just he tackles that question with brilliance. You know, where we have to come, the, the problem when you start bringing in research is that research has a presupposition. We're all moral, evolved animals. 
And so as believers, we have, we have work to do, which is to, to transpose that research in such a way that reflects a biblical worldview. Okay? Um, and so research is important, and there are things in, in the secular literature that can be helpful, but we have to keep in mind that everything in the secular literature does have a presupposition. There's, my, my profession loves to try to pretend we are value neutral in what we're doing. That's impossible. Um, and so as believers, we don't have to... Paul Tripp told me a long time ago, Jeremy, don't be a separatist when it comes to research. Be redemptive. Redeem the research with a biblical worldview. And, I, and, and that's how I try to practice. Um, on that note, uh, Abraham Kuyper, wonderful philosopher on this very subject said this the distinction between the true science and the false science lies not in the arena where people perform their investigations but in the manner with which they investigate and the principle from which they begin to investigate sin has not only corrupted our moral life but has also darkened our understanding the result can only be that anyone attempting to reach scientific knowledge with that darkened understanding is bound to acquire a distorted view of things and thereby reach false conclusions. Abraham Kuyper, brilliant guy. Um, and we'll stop there, but what he's saying is you and I, you know, if we look at Augustine, the kingdom of, of the world and the kingdom of God, he looked at existence as having two different kingdoms. And you and I live in the kingdom of God. And we can look at information from a researcher and we're going we're gonna to have different eyes interpreting that research than the pagan. But it doesn't mean we have to throw that research away. And so next time, what, we're going to start digging into this heart issue. Okay, so I've given you in the last two meetings a broad stroke, a broad brush of human nature. We're worshipers, we're fallen we're created in the image of God, etc. What we're going to begin to do is hone in on, okay, we've, we've mentioned the heart. And I, I think the heart and the word psychology are simultaneous. I don't split those two things apart. Um, and we're going to talk about what is the heart and why is it important. And then what does this all have to do? This class is about the gospel and transformation. What does this have to do about change? And we will we'll tackle that in the next two weeks. Let me pray for you guys. Great questions today. Father, we, we want to humble our hearts before you this morning when we realize, as, as C.S. Lewis did at his own conversion, that there's a lot going on inside of us that opposes you at times, and sometimes we're not even aware of it. It just gives us opportunity to thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. And thank you, God, for just the thorough reach of your gospel to redeem us. And as we take the next couple of weeks and dive into a, a biblical understanding of, of the heart, I pray that you would give us insight, but also for all of us in this room, let what we learn in and of itself, begin to change us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.